Hey everyone, and welcome to the Balance Bodies Blueprint. I am your host, Vin Russo, along here with my co-host, as usual, um, Dr. Aaron Stansfield. Hello. And our special guest today is going to be Brandon DeCruz. What's going on, guys? Yeah. So uh, obviously with this podcast, we try to shift gears from all the conventional fitness narrative that you hear on most fitness podcasts, as our main emphasis is going to lie in preventative healthcare, adapting a holistic approach to nutrition and challenging the traditional views that you normally hear with most fitness topics. And our mission, once again, with this podcast is to serve as your beacon, guiding you on your journey towards achieving optimal health. So in today's podcast, we have the pleasure to welcome Brandon DeCruz to help you understand everything that you need to know about metabolic adaptation, which is a very big buzzword right now. So I just want to give Brandon just a brief introduction, and then I'll let him uh, fill in any spots that I missed. So Brandon um, is an online nutrition and physique coach. He's a certified nutritionist. He's internationally published fitness model. And if you've ever seen his photos, you'd understand why. Um, <laughs> and he is a national level, level MPC competitor. He's been featured in many publications, including like Men's Fitness Magazine, Muscular Development, Bodybuilding.com. And what I find to be really cool is he's a contributing author for um, Alan Aragon's research review. So that's pretty awesome, man. Uh, he spent the last 15 years working in the fitness industry, and he's worked with over a thousand clients. And if you've ever seen his content before, you will know that, you know, he believes in taking a very evidence-informed approach, and he blends that in with his experience. So Brandon, welcome to the Balanced Bodies Blueprint. And uh, once again, thank you for, for taking the time to join us. Absolutely, my man. Uh, first and foremost, I want to uh, you know say thank you to both of you guys for having me on the show. I do appreciate it. I know you guys, I don't know if you've had your first guest yet, but I might be one of the first. So I do find no, you're that the, to be You're honored. the first, man. You're the first. Hey, man, uh, <laughs> I appreciate that more than you even know. And uh, it's really cool that Vinny, you and I have known each other. We can get into this in a little bit uh, for quite some time. So we obviously come from a competitive background. We both were, you know, on um, living in New Jersey for a long period of time. And we both had similar paths within this industry going from like the coaching as well as modeling, as well as competing. So we've kind of um, melded, you know, all these different backgrounds and these different um, paths to a, a point in our lives where this is our full-time profession. You and I both had, you know, full-time careers. I just recently, uh, last uh, summer, so the summer of 2022, I left a corporate uh, sports nutrition uh, industry position that I had. I was a national sales director and I worked in that for 10 plus years within the supplement yeah. industry. So I went all in on my coaching uh, the last year, um, but a little bit, you know, just a little bit more background about myself um, for those who aren't familiar with me or you guys are just, you know, getting introduced to me. Um, you know, I've been, you know, as Vinny hit on, I've been working in the nutrition and the fitness industry for going on 15 years at this point. And most of that time was spent in the sports nutrition industry, working for evidence-based brands like Nutribio Labs, as well as many other. And, uh, but for the past 10 years, another focus of mine has been doing online coaching. And um, so, like I mentioned, as of the last year, I left my corporate position and went all in on my one-on-one -on -one coaching um, company. And then, you know, really the vast majority of my time is spent working in the trenches with clients from honestly all different backgrounds. So oftentimes I'll get on a podcast and they'll tell me what is like your niche demographic or what's your like client avatar. And honestly, I couldn't tell you guys, you know, I work <laughs> with everyone ranging from, you know, high level business executives and lifestyle clients to fellow fitness coaches, you know, a vast majority of my roster are other fitness professionals, whether that be online coaches, nutritionists, dietitians, um, that could be 
on personal trainers or gym owners. And then I also work with, you know, many physique pros and have for quite a long time. And, you know, I've worked with people as high as, you know, the IFBB, like guys stepping on the Olympia level stage. But besides working with clients and mentees, I try to devote a, and we just spoke about this off air, but I try to devote like a good amount of time and a good chunk of my time and energy to educating others. So I participate in several educational seminars each year. I'm also very active on the podcast scene. I have a podcast of my own uh, called the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness Podcast. So this is something that I just really love. I, I really aim to uh, bridge the gap between research and information and then practical application because you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you have no ability to apply it or to teach others how to apply those principles, those practices into their own lives and really be able to help them substantiate or create better habits and behaviors, it's really, it's it's practically meaningless. So really my goal or, you know, really my intention in everything that I do is to be able to get and put out a, a education and empower people with information, but also teach them steps as to how to either understand that better or how to apply it into their own lives. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I think you bring up a good point too, because it's like, if you ever notice like professional athletes, sometimes they're not the best coaches. Like they have the knowledge, they know what to do, but they don't know how to teach it. And with us, we've been in the fitness industry for a very long time doing the competitions and the fitness modeling, and we're able to at least explain it enough um, and, and make it basically uh, apply to, to all of our clients. And they're able to put that into to, to practice. Um, and I think it takes a very skilled individual to be able to do so. I have some practice with that because I was a teacher and I left that and to become full-time uh, balanced bodies head nutrition coach. So yeah, um, I, I, we have a very similar path. Um, you're just way more well-known than I am, man, um, <laughs> especially with all the podcasts you've been on, dude. And you started that Chasing Clarity. You, you were Jeff Black, right? Yeah. So uh, I had done at this point, you know, uh, last spring, Jeff and I came together. I had been um, a guest speaker on his podcast many of times. He used to run a podcast called The Excellence Cartel, Excellent which you've Cartel, been on yourself. Yeah. And yeah. so it was a, a tremendous podcast. They had hundreds of episodes and it was really successful. And I had not only been a, a guest you know, speaker on their podcast, but also I had been I had been given the, the pleasure and the honor of presenting many times in person with the Physique Education Collective, which was a seminar series that they did. I believe it was eight or nine um, iterations of it, essentially. So I spoke at three or four of them over the years. And so Jeff and I have, you know, had a great relationship and great friendship over the last four years. So we really came together. Gr Jeff is a great host. I'm kind of someone you just throw questions at and I'll, I'll run off information. I'm not great with the hosting abilities. I'll tell you, uh, I, I just don't have that ability. So, um, you know, forever give me there's a gotcha. So I could present information, but I'm not really good with like leading conversations and things. So we really balance each other out because Jeff is an incredibly inquisitive individual. He's yeah. very into really like digging deep into things. And so we have a, a great combination. So at this point, man, I think I'm 200 plus podcasts deep, whether that be, you know, also, you know, guest appearances, but then also we're on today, we launched episode 83 or 84 of the podcast. So we're about a year and a half into our own. We do a weekly podcast every single week. And that's just something that I'm known for in terms yeah. of consistency. I'm someone, I'll tell you personally, I, I made a vow in 2017. I was working with a lot of clients. I said, I will not miss one day of posting on social media. And I have yet to miss a day of posting. So this is hundreds or thousands at this point of um, posts that I've made on education in terms of my social media outlets, whether that can't be break the Instagram, chain now, man. You can't, no, I can't, no. I, and, and I almost feel like an obligation, but at the same time, it's something that pushes me forward. I, it's the same thing with clients. Like I'm not going to go to bed until my, my inbox is, you know, essentially, you know, um, you know, functioned out. And so these are just like components of me as an individual that have spread out into my business. But another thing I wanted to hit on is it's not only the, like our, our background, it's not only having the information and the application, but also the relatability to clients, because yeah. a big component of coaching is the psychological side, getting to relate to people and telling them and being able to 
fully and transparently tell them and relate to them in the fact that you say, listen, I understand. I know what it's like to be hungry. I, I, I'll tell you personally, I've done 15 preps over the years. I've done over hundred professional photo shoots. There are many times that I've woken up in the middle of the night, unable to sleep, had this adrenaline dump in the middle of the night. And I I'm, I'm craving broccoli oddest thing in the world. However, <laughs> I know that I don't have the calorie budget to, to fit that broccoli in. So I go right the hell of bed or I, you know, I go do steps or I do something to distract my mindset, but it's something, there is something so tangible and uh, important about being able to tell a client, listen, I will never ask you to do something that I would that not would. you know, be willing to do myself or I have not done myself. So that's why I really, I'm fortunate. And as you two are as well, I, I know Aaron has competed as well. So you guys all have, we all have this background, which is really unique because unfortunately, you know, as all three of us know, our industry has become oversaturated, but it's not oversaturated, high quality coaches, educators, and individuals. It's people that just want in because they think they're going to kick back on a beach, sipping margaritas and answering yeah. emails. And that's not what true coaching, quality coaching is about. It's about being able to really connect with clients, engage with them, create relationships and connections, and really be able to, to take these things that are challenges and obstacles and roadblocks in their way, where they've really held themselves back from being able to really overcome these obstacles, you know, in previous phases, when they didn't have a professional with them, but not only being able to tell them, listen, these, these are the principles we're going to use. This is how I'm going to set up your diet model. You know, this is the training periodization we're going to utilize. However, it's also going to be, hey, I've been there. I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to deal with hunger cravings, you know, um, slipping off off my diet and being hugely disappointed in myself and just wanting to say, you know, what the F and just like continue eating away, but I don't. And so it's, it's something so unique about what we're we're doing currently within the space because it's become so much more saturated. I, I mean, I got into coaching in 2013. The only individuals that I knew at that time that were coaching online, especially, were Jason Theobald, who's a great friend of mine. Um, you know, Dave Palumbo. There was a few guys in the Northeast. There was Shelby Starnes, like, yep. and, and Lane Norton. And Lane was like, you know, an idol to me at the time. I, I remember going and flying out in 2014 to see him speak in person. It was like, I can't believe this guy's making a full time career out of this. Yeah. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that online coaching would be what it is. Today, but it's evolved so much more. It, it's not about macros. I always say nutrition or true coaching isn't about the X and O's of nutrition in terms of macros and calories or these sets and reps in the gym. It's about someone's psychology, really being able to realize that psychology and, and physiology cannot be, they're interconnected. So they cannot be separated. We cannot discount one for the other. And so we're in a unique position where we can empower clients through education. We can relate to them and what they're going through, but then we can also take evidence-based principles and really inform their practices to better, um, essentially better the trajectory of their journey. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's an awesome lead you said you're not a host, but that's an awesome lead into what we're actually trying to do today. We're trying to give out this information. Um, we're going to touch on your physiology and we're going to touch on how that can affect, um, your, your progress in terms of, you know, fat loss, body recomposition, things like that. And, and it really deals with, with the metabolism. So, um, let's dive, let's dive right into it. Uh, why don't you, we just start off and like give people an understanding of what metabolism actually is and what is it comprised of? Yeah, absolutely. So Essentially, you know, oftentimes when we speak about metabolism, people are only looking at like, or only thinking about like a calorie expenditure number. They're thinking about calories in, calories out, what they're burning, what they're able to eat. But really our metabolism refers to the sum of all chemical processes our body goes through to keep us alive and to function and the energy we expend throughout these processes. So our metabolism essentially acts as a thermometer that works as a measure of various inputs and outputs from both our body as well as our environment 
which then determine our calorie needs and our calorie expenditure. And it's an adaptive and reactive system, which is never static. So I, I like to explain it to clients as we're always in flux. You are never like there is, I often speak to clients about a maintenance calorie range. It isn't one specific number. It's not this static amount that you either hit that and it's bullseye or bust. It's this adaptive range that could um, really depend on your activity levels, your sleep, all these different factors that could heavily influence, you know, whether it's 200 calories down or 200 calories up. And so it's important to realize that, you know, our metabolism is always changing and adapting based on different factors, like the quantity and the quality of the foods we eat, the macronutrient composition of our diet. So are we going high protein or we have low, low protein, like little, even just little, you know, nutritional factors like that can really throw things off. You know, it could depend on how hard we train, how active we are on a daily basis, our stress levels, uh, our sleep quantity, as well as our quality. And then you know, many other factors. And I find that when most think about or even speak about their metabolism, they usually only consider the metabolic rate side of things, which is a component of our metabolism. But our met metabolism is actually made up of four different components that together equal our total daily energy expenditure, which is just essentially the total amount of calories that we burn per day. Now, our total daily energy expenditure comes from both resting and non-resting energy expenditure components, meaning the calories you burn just to function at rest, as well as the calories we burn through any sort of physical activity and exercise we engage in. So first, we have our basal metabolic rate, which is what most people think of. So this is your BMR, which accounts for generally or roughly 50 to 60% of our total daily energy expenditure. And our basal metabolic rate refers to the amount of energy we burn at rest just to essentially keep the lights on. So this is just to stay alive and just to be able, you know, it's the, basically the amount of calories that we were to burn if we were just laying in bed all day and not engaged in any activity. So how high or low our BMR is, is mostly determined by our body weight, our body mass and our body composition. And it's most heavily impacted and influenced by our lean body mass, which includes not only the amount of muscle we have. So that's what a lot of people focus on, which is the most modifiable component of our BMR, but it's also, you know, influenced by our internal organs. So if you were to increase your total body mass by adding muscle, your BMR would increase as your body would require more energy just to exist and to fuel normal physiological functions day to day. However, this also works in the opposite direction, which I want to hit on this because this is a big component of metabolic adaptation. So say for instance, that you go into a weight loss phase and you lose both body weight as well as body fat during a diet. Well, your BMR is going to decrease naturally as a result of being a lighter individual and thus needing less energy to function at rest. Now, the next component of this four component model to total daily energy expenditure is our thermic effective food, which is also referred to as diet induced thermogenesis. And this is essentially the energy we, our body burns through thermogenesis or heat to digest, assimilate and metabolize the food we eat, because in order to you know, we, we essentially have to turn food into energy, like there's a chemical, a biochemical process. And so we need to invest energy into the process of digestion to get energy out of the nutrients we consume. So generally, when we look at research studies, this accounts for approximately 10% of our total daily energy expenditure. And that's really based on the macronutrient split of our diet as each macro has a different thermic effect of feeding. So this is where we can really be a little bit more nuanced with nutrition, especially as nutrition coaches, because if we're able to bias a little bit more thermogenic foods, for instance, or macronutrients, we can potentially increase that thermic effect of feeding on a daily basis. So for instance, you know, protein has the highest thermic effect of food at 20 to 30%. Whereas, you know, so essentially like for every hundred calories that you eat of protein, we only net out between 70 to 80 calories. Whereas if we look at carbs and fats, they have much, you know, significantly lower thermic effects of feeding. So with carbs, we have about a five to 10% thermic effect of feeding. And with fats, we have about a zero to 3% thermic effect of feeding.
Now, the next component of our total daily energy expenditure is the one, honestly, that is most overlooked. And, and you guys, you know, Vinny, I know you're very familiar with the stuff I've put out. I, I'm really uh, very focused on this one because it's often the most neglected one. So this is going to be neat. So this is your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is going to include all, you know, informal activities. So this includes your activities of daily living, like your occupational activities, uh, fidgeting and twitching, maintaining your posture. You know, even what I'm doing right now, like I'm speaking with my hands like this, I'm Italian. So, you know, I'm from Jersey too. So, you know, I'm always moving and I'm, 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 you know, my needs through the roof right now. And so, you know, this also includes your daily steps and pretty much everything we do physically besides the intentional training and formal training sessions that you do in the gym. Now, here's the thing with me. It's the most variable component between individuals and also the most modifiable component of our energy expenditure. And generally it's an account for between 15 to 25% of our total daily energy expenditure but it can account for up to 50% in some active individuals. So this is something, this is like a dial or a lever that we can really pull, especially when trying to get someone to be able to increase energy expenditure. And then the last and final component of our total daily energy expenditure is our you know, exercise activity, energy expenditure. And this essentially is the energy that we expend doing intentional exercise. And the thing is, and I had this conversation quite often with clients because, you know, um, nowadays it's so prominent to have an Apple watch or to have an aura ring or, or all these oh, calorie, you know, um, estimation, yeah. yeah, no estimation devices. And so a lot of people, and I, I want to hit on this because most people overestimate this first and foremost, they think they burn more during exercise than they do. But what you have to realize is that eat or exercise activity thermogenesis actually accounts for the least amount of calories you burn for day. And on average, it only accounts for about 5% of our total daily energy expenditure. So really, yes, it is a great component. We want to exercise because there's so many positive adaptations that come, especially from something like resistance training in terms of muscular adaptations, neurological adaptations, all these, you know, uh, bone health, all, all these different types of uh, downstream adaptations, but it's not a calorie expenditure tool. So I always try to enforce with people, we're utilizing strength training or resistance training to build muscle, which is yes, going to increase your total daily energy expenditure due to the effects that it has on being able to carry around more muscle mass, which expends more calories at rest. And also if we look statistically, uh, muscle mass, uh, you know, essentially burns three times as many calories per pound as a pound of fat. However, it isn't a tool to be like doing circuits and, and you know, trying to burn as many calories in that single session, trying to run up your Apple watch, you know, numbers, because yeah. first of all, the inaccuracy on that we see in, in some reports, it's like nine, uh, 23 to 92% off in terms of the variability in terms of its estimation as compared to how many calories you actually burn, but it's also accounting for very little. So you don't want to use, you want to use the right tool for the right job, essentially. Yeah. And I have I love, a quick oh, question. Sorry. Uh, I'm just wondering, like, from your experience, like, you know, you're, you're talking about the different metabolic, um, you know, components. I'm wondering how much, or maybe, you know, about the evidence, um, how much is genetically driven? Like, I feel like a lot of people are more fidgety, for example. So their neat might be more, um, metabolically expensive and, um, it seems natural for them to always be moving around. So I'm wondering how much of that is genetics versus, you know, just, um, environment. Yes, so absolutely. So if we actually look into like the obesity literature, generally they say between 50 to 70% of our axial baseline um, anthropometrics, so body composition and stuff are genetically driven. Uh, I kind of bias more on that 50% of things uh, just due to the fact that we have other research that reinforces that 50% number. But if we specifically look into need, uh, that component, we actually see in overfeeding studies. So for instance, James Levine has done, he was actually the uh, researcher and scientist that coined the the term neat. And we see in overfeeding studies that it's highly variable. So for instance, he did an overfeeding study where it was eight weeks in duration and they increased the calorie amount that these individuals ate a thousand calories over baseline for these eight weeks. And they found that every, almost every single 
individual increased their NEAT levels and actually dissipated more energy as a result of eating more. So they ate more, they burned more. The average was around 328 calories, I believe, of increase in just the NEAT component. But keep in mind, when you overfeed, you're also seeing an increase in basal metabolic rate. You're seeing an increase in thermic effective feeding. So for instance, if we just look like statistically, if it's 10% for the thermic effective feeding, those individuals were burning 100 extra calories due to consuming 1,000 extra calories. So when we look at it in the NEAT component, the average was 328. However, there was you know, a few individuals that burned over 700 calories extra. So we see this vast right. uh, variation. I believe there was a tenfold difference between participants in terms of their, what he calls, he used to refer to as a neatotype. So essentially like your neat phenotype. And mm -hmm. uh, there was actually, and what's really interesting, and this is something that there isn't a lot of data on. However, if you actually look into the individual data points, so if you look at like the forest plot and um, you look at individuals across the spectrum of, you know, increases in neat, and then also who went below the zero line, there was a few individuals that actually down regulated meat in the face of overfeeding. So those would be the pretty people that I would assume, and it doesn't say this in the study, but we know individuals that when they have a huge meal, whether it be a Thanksgiving meal or they're at the Rodigio or whatever it may be, some of them are super hot. I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, I need another shirt. Like, I'm sweating. Right. I want to be up right. and moving. After Thanksgiving, I'm going to play football. However, there are some individuals that just sit there, they slouch, they get what's called post-prandial uh, somnolence. So that sleepy, sluggish feeling after eating a, especially a high-carb meal. Mm -hmm. And so there is one individual that actually downregulated their energy expenditure in just the com neat component by 92 calories. So they gained, you know, a precipitous uh, amount more than those individuals that increase energy expenditure by 700. So within that study, we see a tenfold discrepancy between weight gain and it wasn't mapped. Like, so for instance, we know, you know, there's this purported 3,500 calorie rule. So if you were to increase your calories or your um, calories by a thousand for a week, that's 7,000 calories. You would expect that over the course of eight weeks, hypothetically, you would gain 16 pounds. That's actually not what they saw. They saw some people gained, you know, about 1.6 pounds, and then some people gained over 16 pounds due to that downregulation of need. So it's highly variable. And what's interesting about that is that we actually see within that individual data points that women are less likely to upregulate need than men are. And so we don't really know, you know, these are just sex specific differences. They didn't go into the physiological reasons as to why that was, but this is just what one study that is pretty much like the foundational evidence on this topic has shown. And they really haven't done too many overfeeding studies specifically looking at NEAT since then, but uh, this is just, you know, some data we can go off of. That's awesome. Yeah. I, that's, yeah that's, thank you. Yeah. That, that was a great yeah, explanation, sure. man. And I know um, Dr. Aaron, she, she's going to have a question sooner or later about female versus male uh, with metabolic <laughs> adaptation, but we are definitely going to have to explain to our audience um, what metabolic adaptation actually is. So if you don't mind, just kind of running through a brief um, explanation of, of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So metabolic adaptation essentially refers to the collection of physiological adaptations our body goes through in responses to changes in our energy intake and our changes in body composition and how those changes impact our energy expenditure. So the main thing this concept refers to is how our metabolism adapts and adjusts the changes in energy intake and body mass. And here's the thing, like we just spoke about a neat overfeeding study. I want people to realize that metabolic adaptation, although it's often just spoken about, and today we're going to speak about it in context of dieting. I do want people to know that it works on both the upwards, you know, increasing calories as well as decreasing calories, because oftentimes when we speak about metabolic adaptation, people only look at it as this negative thing that occurs when we diet, but it actually, it occurs in both directions. And so it's important to realize that we'll specifically talk about what happens during a dieting phase, because that's what the metabolic adaptation that most individuals, especially listening to this podcast will go through. But many know that when we go into a calorie deficit and lose weight, our body adapts by downregulating certain metabolic processes to decrease our calorie expenditure in an effort to conserve energy. 
And, but this also happens in the opposite direction, like we were just speaking about. So, you know, for instance, if we're to increase calories and we gain muscle or gain weight, such as during a reverse dieting phase or a building phase, our body adapts upwards and upregulates our metabolic processes that increase our energy expenditure. And so, you know, another component of metabolic adaptation that I really want to tease out for your audience is um, the fact that it's multifactorial. And so a lot of times, you know, often when people discuss metabolic adaptation, they solely focus on the reduction in metabolic rate that occurs as a result of losing weight. But it's only one component of metabolic adaptation, which is why I try to point out that our metabolisms are extremely adaptive, both in a downwards and in an upwards direction, depending on the phase we're in and what we're doing with our diet and our training. Now, what we see in the research in regards to dieting is something that's referred to as adaptive thermogenesis. So you'll actually see this used interchangeably, but they kind of refer to adaptive thermogenesis is a component of metabolic adaptation, but it's specifically referring to the fact that we experience a larger drop in energy expenditure than we'd purely uh, expect based off of the total weight and body fat that we've lost during a fat loss phase. So this decrease in energy expenditure comes from a combination of factors, including a slight reduction in our basal metabolic rate, in addition to reductions that are even more substantial components of metabolic adaptation. And these weight loss induced adaptations will generally cause between an extra 5 to 15% reduction in total calories burned per day, depending on the magnitude of weight loss, the length that someone has been in a diet, their genetics, something that Aaron hit on very much so. And uh, this is essentially an adaptive mechanism put in place to stop us from losing too much weight. So this is what makes fat loss seem, or even, you know, the feeling like when you're in a fat loss phase, this makes it more difficult because the longer you're in a deficit, the more metabolic adaptations you're going to be likely to incur. But it's important to note that these adaptations do not halt the process of fat loss. So it simply makes it so that we have to take a more intelligent and a strategic approach about how we approach, you know, overcoming these obstacles. And also, I think, you know, I've spoken about this topic many times and sometimes people catastrophize what metabolic adaptation is. And they're like, well, how do I avoid it? You know, it's almost like the boogeyman. It's like, we cannot avoid metabolic adaptation. However, we can mitigate and manage its effects. And also we can have awareness of what's going on. So for instance, the largest component, and we'll go really into the data on this, but the largest component of metabolic adaptation is actually from our neat component. So drops in subconscious activity levels. Now, let's think about interventions we can utilize. We can utilize a Fitbit or a step tracker. We can increase our step count. We can make sure that we're active. We can park in the back of a parking lot rather than in the front when we're dieting. So there's these lifestyle habitual and behavioral interventions that we can utilize to essentially um, create interventions that work around these metabolic adaptations that are naturally occurring during an energy deficit. Yeah. And I was uh, just going to, that's a perfect cue for my question is, you know, do you see sex differences um, in this metabolism, like the metabolic adaptation? So in, in specifically to metabolic adaptation, I do not see sex specific differences. And the reason I can't speak on that uh, extensively is because the literature has never bared out essentially the differences between men and women. However, what we do see is just a discrepancy in terms of an actual metabolic rate. So when we actually look at, you know, um, body composition matched uh, individuals. So we have a male and a female that have the same body composition, same fat mass and same lean mass. They'll actually have the same metabolic rate and they'll have the same total daily energy expenditure as long as, they, as everything's clamped. So their activity levels, their training levels and their actual body composition. So if we have a, for instance, if we have a male and female that are 150 pounds at 20% body fat, they're on the same training program, they're doing 10,000 steps per day, they'll actually have the same baseline levels of resting metabolic rate as well as total daily energy expenditure, which actually a lot of people don't realize. They think there's actually this myth in this industry 
that women automatically had a lower resting metabolic rate. And the reason we see that, and, and here's the thing, for every claim that there is in this industry, there's often a grain of truth in it, which makes it seem a lot more believable. So for instance, when I look and I work with many clients that they're, they're couples. And so for instance, if we just look, I, I use you two. Vinny, say you're 210 pounds and Aaron, you're 120 pounds. You guys have completely pretty different body on. compositions. So pretty spot on. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good with uh, my estimation. About that. You, you a lot of chickens over Jersey Shore on the boardwalk and, and <laughs> so, uh, so we have two different body compositions, but say, you know, I'm, I'm dieting both of you guys. Well, we have to keep in mind that Aaron's, you know, maintenance calories are going to be far less than yours. So to induce an energy deficit, not only are we going to have to take her calories lower, but also if I was to equate the calorie deficit that I utilize for, for Vinny and for Aaron, and I gave them both a 500 calorie deficit, we'll do the stock standard fitness, you know, industry 500 yeah. calorie deficit. It's going to be much more of a substantial decrease in Aaron's, uh, you know, total calorie intake than it is for Vinny. So say Vinny, you're eating 3000 calories and Aaron, you're eating, you know, 2000 calories. If I take your uh, calories down to Vinny by 500, that is a one six drop in your, um, in your total uh, energy intake. And that's about 16.7%. And Aaron, if I took your calories down by 500 at 2000, that would be a 25% deficit. However, you guys are going to lose at the same rate of loss. And so that's really what we see where we have men and women that see each other and they say, well, you know, my husband can lose so much quicker. Well, right. first and foremost, he can create a larger deficit because he has a higher maintenance calorie intake. But when we actually look at statistically and in the research, so there's a great research uh, paper by Ponser and colleagues, 2021, where they looked at, and actually the strongest correlate to our resting metabolic it accounts for you know an r squared value of you know when it, when you actually do the r squared um, equation it's about 70 percent of your resting metabolic rate is accounted for your lean body mass and here's the thing when we actually look you know between sex differences between males and females women on average have 10 percent more body fat than males do and 10 percent less lean mass and that's not only due to essential body fat levels but also you know obviously activity levels things of that sort also you know kind of how we culturally um are i guess um, and socially like engineered in terms of like men are, are obviously a lot more active in terms of like weight bearing sports and things of that sort. So yes, we don't see in the actual literature on metabolic adaptations, uh, differences in sex. However, we do see differences in the real world where it's like, you know, a lot of times I'll have women that tell me that they've had such a, uh, difficult time dieting or another thing we have to think about the psychological side, I will say, and this is from personal experience, but you can also look in the literature on this. For instance, uh, a 2018 study looked at the prevalence of dieting every each and every year between sexes. Men were 42% 40, of men that were surveyed were likely to go on a diet each and every year. 61% of women reported going on a diet each and every year. So we're looking at a 20% discrepancy in and of itself. So women more likely with a chronic dieting history, they might have some sustained metabolic adaptations due to the fact that they haven't been in a state of energy balance or back to maintenance calories long enough. So when we look just head to head, if we were to put them into a randomized control trial, we're probably not going to see differences in metabolic adaptation. But when we look in the real world and we're working with clients and I look at Vinny that has, you know, or I look at my male client that has five diets over 25 years. And I look at my female client that has 30, there's going to be a huge amount of differences. And that's where real world coaching comes into, into play. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think, I well, think mindset you. has a lot to do with that too. So like, even with like females, like I have a harder time, this is anecdotal evidence here, but I have a harder time trying to feed them up. I call it my metabolic capacity mm -hmm. phase. I have a harder time getting them to dive into that and, and buy into it compared to a male. And I think that has 100%. a lot to do with you know, society and how they ingrained it on women, they need to be little and it goes, it goes against all their conventional wisdom to where they're like, I know if I don't want to get bigger, I need to eat less. And it's like, yeah, but you know, we got to work it up. And they don't, they, they're, they're less, there's less of a buy-in with women to where guys are just like, yeah, let's go. Like, uh, I'm okay with that. So I think a mindset thing has to do with it. Um, but I, I, yeah, I would love to know if there's actually any like 
physiological differences uh, with metabolic adaptation with that. Now, one area we can look at, and this is a different topic that I could come on and speak on for another hour on. So this is a little <laughs> bit separate of a tangent. I'm not going to go down this rabbit hole. So pull me back in within two minutes if I keep going. <laughs> there is a field which is looking at relative energy deficiency in sport or relative energy deficiency syndrome. And this stems, these are physiological ramifications or downregulations as a result of being in low energy availability. What we do see with women is they're more susceptible to negative effects from low energy availability. And low energy availability essentially means that it's essentially a very disproportionate um, amount of calorie intake compared to calorie expenditure. So we actually look at the equation. It's your energy intake minus your energy expenditure from exercise relativized towards your level of fat-free mass. So it's a kind of a complex equation. You have to get the decks and things to really equate it. But we see that women see perturbations in energy availability or perturbations in their, their menstrual cycle disturbances, their sex hormone production. They see it at a much more sensitive threshold. So about 30 kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass, we start seeing perturbations, meaning downregulations in sex hormone production, LH pulsatility. There's many research studies by Lo Anne Locks and uh, Olson that have looked at this specifically. But then when we actually look at men, it's, it's really interesting. There was a case study. Um, I'm trying to think, Carl Langan, I believe, is the, the um, author on the case study. But there's a case study of a Taekwondo athlete. He's a male. And and during his entire fight camp for eight weeks, he was at 20 kcals per kilogram. So 10, you know, 10 uh, kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass less than the females that are seeing perturbations in energy availability. And he did not see down regulations in testosterone production, uh, elevation in cortisol, uh, you know, really disparate changes in his baseline, you know, uh, metrics and blood work until he got to 10 kcals per kilogram of fat-free mass. So there is a, a, quite a discrepancy in terms of the threshold, but energy availability and energy deficits are, are two different things because energy balance equation essentially refers to our total daily intake minus our total daily energy expenditure. And it's not just uh, exercise activity. Uh, whereas low energy availability and REDS is really looking at very high-end athletes that are overexpending. So it's the person that's chronically underfueling themselves and over-exercising. And we do see that to be very very prominent within the literature on female athletes. So it's more of like the subsect. That's why it's referred to as relative energy deficiency in sport. But in that field, there is very much sex specific differences. However, we got to kind of tease it out for metabolic adaptation and then relative energy deficiency. I know we're getting down a rabbit hole, but it's actually quite interesting to me at least. Mm -hmm. So biologically speaking, um, I think of mitochondria, like mitochondrial differences between men and women, right? Just mm -hmm. evolutionarily speaking, um, women are meant to be able to handle starvation a little bit better. Um, and, and you are talking about REDS, which I think a lot of physicians, um, you know, may not be aware of since, mm -hmm. you know, the Olympic committee kind of came up with this, um, set of diagnostic criteria essentially for female athletes. I think, Absolutely. you know, it's becoming more, um, popular, especially as we look at um, teenagers. So, you know, um, for example, the Boston Children's Hospital now has a very specific program for REDS. Um, but I'm just curious of your opinion of maybe this has to do with some mitochondrial differences um, and as to why females might be affected, especially athletes. So I wouldn't say that it's coming down. So we do know that there's differences in, in not only how women's mitochondria respond, but also their oxidative capacity. So women are more fat burners, essentially. They have more, their mitochondria, their, even their proteins in their muscle are actually more oxidative. They're going to rely off fat metabolism rather than carbohydrate metabolism, which is where men are more biased. So actually, if we actually look into, say, like contest prep dieting, so we actually go into the metabolic adaptation literature, we look at the leanest women 
in these case studies, they actually have much less of a disposition towards lean body mass loss than males are. And that's for multiple reasons. Estrogen has, you know, skeletal muscle remodeling uh, factors. It helps with uh, decreasing protein degradation, things of that sort. But they're also more reliant on fat for fuel than they are both carbohydrates right. and tapping into protein as fuel. However, I think it's more of an energy conservative mechanism because we have to think about it from like an ancestral perspective. Women you know, we're the ones that were completely responsible for the extension and the continuation of our species. And so I think that their ability to withstand very high levels of stress, as well as low energy availability is mostly for that. And that's also, if we look anthropologically, like if we look into really like ancestral history, that is also the, the you know, what people and researchers posit is the reason for their elevated level of, you know, essential body fat. So we look on a male, it's generally about 3% essential body fat levels, whereas with females, it's around 12%. So there's discrepancy, but it's also so they, they have enough body fat stored on their body to be able to um, essentially continue, reprodu first of all, have reproductive uh, capacity, but also to carry a baby to term. Whereas male, like, listen, Vinny, you and I, we do the deed, we're done. And like, you know, we, we, we gun and gone. It doesn't matter because we're not, we're not responsible for that. So I think that there's many, you know, I think this is, this is part of the research that really needs to get more teased out. I do find um, women's physiology to be first of all, a very heavily understudied uh, component of exercise science. Uh, you know, uh, Vinny and I have spoken about this, but exercise science is a soft science. Um, but really, we need to get a lot more. And I'm really on board with doing more studies on, you know, sex-specific differences. I, I have to give a big credit to a mentor of mine that I have an immense amount of respect for, Dr. Bill Campbell. He's um, out of uh, University of South Florida. He does a lot of women-specific research. I have Great an immense research. amount of respect for him. Absolutely. And so there are certain people, Abby Smith-Ryan out of UNC, they're, they're really pushing this industry forward. But we're going to have to wait a little bit more to really see that. But I will say, if we, we go back to relative energy efficiency, you actually mildly hit on this, is it actually started as a female athlete triad. So that was Barbara Drinkwater in the right. 80s and 90s that termed that. The concept of relative energy deficiency never was put forward until 2014 with the IOC consensus statement for the you know International Olympic Committee. So this is something we didn't even know it applied to males until 2014, where they really started seeing more of these case studies where they were saying, all right, we have the female athlete triad, which is essentially amenorrhea or the cessation of a menstrual cycle. We have low uh, bone mineral density or the you know really leading it to osteoporosis and then disordered eating behaviors essentially under fueling and we're seeing this triad but there's so many other ramifications which also lead into metabolic adaptation so one of the biggest things i have an interest for and i really hope that this field keeps pushing in is we have all these different sectors within research and i'm someone that i like looking at all these different sectors and i try to take you know pieces you know i kind of have the bruce lee mentality take what's useful and discard what's useless and so we have all these different sectors we have the relative energy deficiency spectrum which is really looking at athletes we have metabolic adaptation which is really big in the obesity literature and the dieting literature. And then we also have energy constant, uh, uh, compensation, which is like the constrained energy model, which is Herman Ponser stuff. And that's more of like, uh, uh, he's looking more at like an ancestral history. He's looking at like the Hadza and things of that sort. If we could really blend in this, I, I do know that these researchers are trying to come together to really create like a, a full consensus on everything that's going on from decreases in energy availability, decreases in calorie intake, and the body's uh, energy conservation mechanisms as a result. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it's an interesting field, like even, you know, in medicine, like from the medical side, they're looking, you know, um, at what they call omic stuff. So like the, the microbiome and, uh, you know, looking at specifically metabolic disorders to kind of quantify what um, cellular differences there might be. Um, I think it's, uh, if we can all come together in one thing, it would be amazing. But I think science, that's one of the issues with science is sometimes we don't communicate across yeah. fields. <laughs> Very yeah. siloed. Industries. Yes.
Yes. Well, well uh, I gave you guys over two minutes there. So back to metabolic adaptation. <laughs> yeah. uh, but no, um, so a crucial part of metabolic adaptation is obviously the uh, decrease in NEAT because NEAT, like you said earlier, it has a real, it has one of the biggest effects on how much we're burning per day. Um, so when we're decreasing, like when we go into a deficit, and I remember like when I was competing, uh, it was my first pro show at the WBFF. And I was saying like, thank you to people and my coaches and stuff. And every time I blinked, it was like a slow blink. And I was like, I was like, damn, like I didn't even realize that. But like your body literally slows that stuff down. Um, so can you go into a little bit of that um, with like maybe how to not mitigate it because we can't basically avoid metabolic adaptation, right? It's, it's a natural process, but, um, instead of trying to avoid it, how can people and professionals like ourselves, cause there's going to be some coaches that listen to this, what can they do to account for when planning for metabolic adaptation? All right. So from a coaching perspective, I think awareness is really important. So Vinny, you're specifically hitting on NEAT, which a lot of people overlook first and foremost. This is something that I remember just a few years ago, people weren't counting, you know, tracking steps and things. I remember, you know, I've done many presentations on energy flux, which is another uh, concept that I utilize and a model that I utilize with a lot of my clients, which centers around the concept of eating more and moving more and has a lot to do with step titrations and, and tracking steps and things of that sort. However, a lot of people aren't even aware of the significance of NEAT because there's so much emphasis on metabolic adaptation in the component of resting metabolic rate. Everyone fears their metabolism being damaged or downregulated or broken or all these things. And what a lot of people don't realize is that reductions in NEAT account for actually approximately 85 to 90% of the downregulations in our total calorie expenditure that we experience as a result of metabolic adaptation. So if we actually, the first thing we need to realize is the significance of this. So for instance, we have literature that shows that your total daily energy expenditure can drop by over 400 calories per day just to the impact weight loss has on your knee levels. So say that you were looking to lose one pound per week and you were utilizing a 500 calorie deficit. If you were not to pay attention to your knee levels, track them, make sure they're either being maintained or titrated up, that could essentially negate the vast majority of your deficit, think about it. If you're downregulated 400 calories and you're in a 500 calorie deficit, that 500 calorie deficit just went to a 100 calorie deficit. So 80% of your, your total calorie deficit is now negated. And so, you know, oftentimes people don't realize this, you know, how significant this reduction in need is. So a lot of times you'll hear people, and I had these conversations on a daily basis with clients that have done dieting phase in the past, and they tell me SECO doesn't work. And they do so because the deficit they were in based on whatever it be an online calorie calculator or what some guru told them or an estimation equation, it didn't yield the fat loss that they expected based off the, the total deficit that they it was supposed to create. But also they don't take into account that they could have downregulated meat. So for instance, one thing that I do with all my clients is I take and have them track meat off the bat. And so I, I don't ever, you know, I don't want to say ever because that's a, you know, essentially a always, but um, most times, more times than not, nine out of 10 people that come to me, they're not in the position to diet, to be honest with you. And I'm sure you guys can both relate to that. They either have physiological reasons that they can't diet or psychological reasons. And the vast majority of people have both. And so within that, I do something called a primer phase. And really what I'm trying to do is prime their body, both internally and also their mind to be able to have better habits, um, you know, really um, have better foundational behaviors and things that are going to set them up for success long-term. So I do this primer phase previously, and I make sure that they're eating at maintenance or maintenance plus. Generally, I'm, I'm you know, dialing in their habits around food, their diet quality, 
their movement practices. So making sure they're doing daily walks. I like post uh, post meal walks for the um, improvements in insulin sensitivity and blood glucose, as well as it helps with decreasing bloating, gas, all those type of things. And so I'm trying to get them into a movement practice. So for instance, say I have an individual that is at 8,500 steps per day. That's usually the baseline minimum that I put for most of my clients. And the reason for that is uh, there's research out of uh, University of Texas that looks at um, metabolic consequences of low activity levels. And they did a step titration study and they did one at 2,700 steps, 5,600 steps and 8,500 steps. And the only one that actually saw, um, you know, improvements in insulin sensitivity, blood glucose management, um, postprandial glycemia, all these different things were at 8,500 steps per day. Yeah. So that's really where you can actually clear, uh, you know, when you have a glucose and a fat challenge, so it was a glucose and lipid challenge, you can effectively clear both glucose and fatty acids from the bloodstream. And so I really set that as like a baseline minimum. If someone's really low, I work them up over, you know, subsequent weeks or months. If someone's, you know, at 4,000 steps per day, it's not like, hey, week one, we go from 4,000 to 8,500. Like that's a hundred percent, over hundred percent increase. That's not what we're doing. I'm titrating them up during the primer phase. However, as we start to diet, I'm having them track that baseline, you know, um, activity levels. And from there, I'm either keeping it, you know, clamped, meaning base, you know, uh, just consistent or throughout the course of the phase, I may increase steps. And the reason for that is we have to realize that Metabolic adaptation has many downstream effects. So to go back to what Aaron was speaking about with mitochondrial change, we actually see that mitochondrial efficiency increases during an energy deficit. So what ends up happening is, remember, we have to waste energy in terms of the process of turning you know, food into chemical energy through the process of, of ATP uh, production. And so within that, our mitochondria become more efficient where they burn less calories for that ATP production. And so we see this mitochondrial efficiency increase. So we see down regulations in all different components of your total energy expenditure. So we see in the BMR, we see it in the meat component. We see it in the exercise activity thermogenesis component. We also see it in the thermic effect feeding. However, specifically in terms of movement, we become more economical. So for every step we take, every bicep curl we do, we're burning less energy for that exact same activity. So for instance, if I start someone out and they're at 8,500 steps, eight weeks into the diet, that 8,500 steps isn't burning as many calories as it was week one of the diet. So we need to titrate that up to be able to at least offset those down regulations, both in subconscious need, which are coming from, you know, blinking less, not speaking with your hands as much, you know, not going out to get your, your mail, you know, when the post office guy comes, you know what I mean? Things like that, but also to be able to ensure that we're trying to eradicate as much as those down regulations that's need as possible. Because keep in mind, most of need is subconscious, meaning it's things that we don't even think about. There is no one that, you know, taps their foot all the time that is going to consciously, you know, realize, hey, listen, I'm not tapping my feet as much. So I'm going to purposely tap my feet. Like most people aren't going to do that. Tapping your, you know, speaking with their hands. It's not like someone's going to automatically during diet, realize that they're down regulated and start saying, you know, like Vinny, like you said, you were blinking slower. And I'll tell you personally, I was at a presentation a week after North Americans in 2018. It was bodybuilding.com headquarters speaking in front of 400 individuals there. And there's a video of me and the VP of my company was like, what was wrong with you? Cause I'm a very lively and energetic person. Yeah. I have ADD. I'm constantly moving. I'm all over the place. He goes, are you all right? And I said, what do you mean? I, I thought I killed the presentation, to be honest with you, because cognitively I was there, yeah. but physically I was not. And he goes, dude, you were blinking like half as slow as usual. Your hands did not move. And that I know something's wrong with you in that case. And so, you know, these are things we're not conscious of. You're not going to start blinking quicker. You're not going to start moving your hands if that is something that's subconsciously downregulated. So what component of need do we have that's in our control? Our step count. Yeah. So that's where titrating steps up, utilizing a step tracker, really take staying on top of it and looking at weekly averages over time and making sure that it's not coming down. Because I will tell you that I started utilizing what I you know call a high energy flux model in about 2015. And, and really it's become more evolved this time as went on this term energy flux wasn't actually um, termed in the literature until 2018. So I used to just call it daily step tracking. 
And I will tell you there was many times that before this was prominent, I had individuals that wouldn't really check their, their step count throughout the day, or they would only check it at the end of the week and then give me an average. And I remember yeah. having clients that were starting at 10,000 steps per day in a building phase or in a maintenance phase prior to us going to the diet. And we're two weeks in, they're at 6,000 steps per day. Yeah. And so obviously, you know, we would have to get a calorie estimation for every 2,000 calories, approximately like 80 to 100 calories. But say it was 100 calories. That is 200 calories that you just reduce your energy expenditure per day. And now you're in a 500 calorie deficit, but really you're in a 300 calorie deficit. And you're wondering why you're not seeing the weight loss that you expect. Yeah. And I would say, you know, even from a coaching perspective, um, trying to account for that. So making them, making your client aware of, Hey, this might happen. So as we get leaner and leaner, let's start being a little bit more cognizant of what is going on. Maybe you do have to get set a timer and get up, do the Pomodoro effect. And during that five minutes, Absolutely. go walk for a little bit, just to keep that up. Um, I like to do the step count too. A lot of people do the 10,000 steps per day. I'm more like, like, where are you? Like initially, because if you come at me like 5,000 steps, I'm not going to tell you to jump up to 10. I might tell you to jump up to 75 because we could get that. It's, it's doable. Absolutely. Um, so, but I think it's a great way, um, to, to be able to increase or, or keep our neat high while not adding too much stress to the body. So, um, and I think that's very overlooked with, with, um, with coaching and, and dieting in general. Absolutely. It's a low barrier of entry method that is not systemically taxing. It's not, not going to have a recovery debt. And actually, if you look in the literature on active recovery modalities, actually walking facilitates not only nutrient delivery, it facilitates better blood flow. It actually has recovery um, eating capacity. And also, you know, I'll tell you just some interventions I utilize with clients. So I like post-meal walks. So think about it. We're, we're doing a habit stacking technique pretty much just out of James Clear's book. And so you know, atomic habits, he doesn't speak about walking, but for instance, if you're going to, you're going to eat a meal, you're going to eat three to four times a day. That's something you're going to do day in and day out. Just tack on a 10 minute walk right after, or, you know, with the alarm thing, I've done that many times with my office workers, listen, every hour. And here's the thing. Sometimes, you know, there's uh, clients will be like, I don't think I can do this. And it's like, listen, your, um, your coworkers that aren't into fitness are going for a smoke break every hour for five minutes. So you get up and you do a, a lap of the building or go to the furthest bathroom. Or uh, another thing I'll, I'll tell them to sometimes is like, listen, front load your water early in the day you know, prior to going to work and then they have to get up to go to the bathroom. Go to bathroom. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I like every, you know, uh, every one, every one hour going for five minutes of a walk, just trying to intersperse activity into your day, because we see that there's an independent effect of city or sedentary activity that actually decreases your actual metabolic health. So even if you are, there's there interventional studies where they look at just sitting for the entire course of the day and then doing an hour bout of intense exercise and they don't and, and then they compare it into those same individuals so it's a crossover design where they go through each component and when they have someone get up throughout the course of the day and do their regular step count in addition to that aerobic or that resistance training effort at the end of the day they see much better uh metabolic outcomes however when they are to be sedentary or they're sedentary throughout the entire course of the day and then they try and make up for it like many do where they go to the gym for an hour a day they check the box and they say oh you know i had my exercise they see that actually it leads to over time insulin resistance uh an inability to clear both fatty acids as well as glucose out of the bloodstream and so there's metabolic consequences of that not only in terms of your your metabolic health but also longevity uh there's many you know studies that show that sedentary activity actually decreases mortality and things of that sort and so and also from like a cognitive perspective if you are someone i work with a lot of high level executives like walking is help increase BDNF. There's going to be many cognitive benefits of just getting up, getting out of your workspace, getting out of that stressful environment and just, you know, having a reprieve going, you know, doing some deep breath work, you know, as you go walk for five, 10 minutes, it's going to have a lot of benefits, not only to your physical health, your mental health, your cognition, your um, ability to articulate yourself and things of that sort. Yeah. And before we get off this uh, little tangent here, um, just real quick. So like even with diet interventions, 
right? Like I know um, I'm big on like reading my client's biofeedback and all the data, like give me all the data, let me make the right decisions. Um, there's times where diet breaks or people call them maintenance breaks, whatever it is. There's time where like, I feel like they need to be implemented. Um, I also feel like refeeds are also good, especially mm -hmm. like if you have competitors going to stage, like throw refeeds in there. Um, how do how does that affect metabolic adaptation? Does it slow it down? Like, how, what, what do you think about that? All right, so we need to we need to tie this out a little bit differently. The literature on what are called intermittent dieting strategies. So what you're referring to, it's essentially a broad classification of intermittent dieting strategies that includes refeeds, high carb days, as well as diet breaks. From a physiological perspective, we don't see a benefit from them. If you actually look into the literature, Pios et al. 2021, you look at Campbell et al., uh, just a recent study that he came out. It's actually Madeline Siegler is the uh, primary author on that, that um, research study. Those are both diet break studies. There is one by Dr. Bill Campbell that is a refeed study that saw better preservation of lean body mass and metabolic rate, but that's the only one that we had that has any physiological benefits. So when we actually look at intermittent dieting strategies from a physiological side, it's not going to reverse metabolic adaptation because we're not staying at maintenance calories or in energy balance for long enough. So just from a pure physiological perspective, no. However, we have to consider the physiology or the psychology. psychology and yeah. so with all of those, we oh, see yeah. better benefits from a disinhibition perspective, from a diet um, a adherence perspective, from a mood stability. And also in PLS, they actually did a secondary analysis of training throughout the week of a diet break. And they actually saw better muscular endurance from the week of being in a diet break. So these are things I do utilize because we have to realize that it's not just about physiology. It's also about psychology. Mm -hmm. So there, I, I use a reactive approach to implementing intermittent dieting strategies. So for instance, with a refeed perspective, you brought up competitors. Yes. I, I actually utilize two day refeeds quite frequently. And the reason for that is it's practicing peaking strategies. It yeah. is allowing me to have a two day period to see what see increases in carbohydrate availability, how they fill out, how they feel digestion, all these different things, trialing different methods, and then also seeing how long it takes them to dry out after, or to essentially to assimilate those carbohydrates, restore glycogen, be full, but also tight at the same time. Because if we just wait till the end of a contest prep, that's, that's really playing Russian roulette. Also, in terms of a diet break capacity, I actually refer to this as the strategy that I utilize is a deficit deload. And that's how I, I categorize it or I explain to my clients. Diet break, I, I was utilizing them very early on. One of the first people that ever spoke about them was Lyle McDonald. And I started implementing them in the same fashion as he did, uh, where it was a one-week diet or diet break, essentially, where you raise calories back up to maintenance, predominantly from carbohydrate. And at the time, we, we believe that you should do it from carbohydrates because of the increase in leptin that come along with increasing carbohydrates as compared to increasing fats, which literally, when we do overfeeding studies of carbohydrates versus fats, we don't see any effect, even from overfeeding fats, on leptin levels, whereas we do see an increase in a substantial increase, a significant increase in leptin levels from increasing carbohydrates. However, with the diet break, what oftentimes I realized clients were having were they looked at that term or, or heard that term and it was like all bets are off. They utilize different food sources. Um, they, they blew their calories on occasion. And, and sometimes it was really hard for them to psychologically get back on the horse. Yeah. So what I had originally utilized as a way to, as a reprieve to reset them mentally and physically was actually causing more harm than good. So now I phrase it as a deficit deload. We're pulling off systemic stress, both from dietary fatigue perspective, as well as physical uh, fatigue perspective. I want you to utilize the same food sources that have been helping you be satiated and be successful in terms of your actual fat loss phase. But all we're doing is increasing the portions of those foods so you're extra satiated. You have more uh, glycogen to be able to train harder, get better pumps in the gym, look better cosmetically. There's all these different benefits. And I also like to align them with high stress periods in their life, whether it be they're moving. Or for instance, I just transitioned one of my clients, Michael, uh, into a diet break yesterday because his wife you know, is about to have a ba uh, baby. And so these are things that we can implement. And it doesn't have to be like these, these paradigms that we used to see where it was like, you have to do, you know, it's eight weeks on, one week diet break. Or, you know, 
know, five two, you know, refeed structure. It's it's really reactive. I believe that um, coaching is a reactive system. We can't predict, and I'm going to be completely transparent. And sometimes, you know, clients will I'll have this conversation with them, and they'll say, "Oh, you can't do that." And it's like I can't tell the future, and I have almost 11 years of experience, but I can't tell what your body's going to respond to in advance. So I can't tell you. I can tell you a forecast of what I believe our plan will be leading forward, but I would be doing you a disservice if I proactively programmed everything we're doing for the next four to six weeks, because then I'm not taking your biofeedback, your personal, you know, account, you know, your personal uh, feelings, subjective feelings, uh, everything I'm reading within your check-in into account when actually making those adjustments and those changes into your plan. It is a week by week basis. We take this one day at a time, one check-in at a time, and I'm, you know, changing things based on your biofeedback, the assessments that I'm making in terms of gauging your progression, as well as if I see down regulations in all biofeedback workers, so someone's sleep is shit, they have extreme hunger through the roof, they're unable to, you know, really get through their workouts, they're having a, a you know, a really big decrease in work capacity in terms of like set to set progressions, we're seeing them go from say, we're, we're doing, um, you know, an exercise, incline dumbbell press, and they're doing three sets of 12, but they're going from 12, eight, six, like, and usually they're 12, 12, 12, you know, there's decreases in work capacity could be due to glue, uh, uh, carbohydrate availability, things like that. That's where it's like, listen, we're going to implement this and, re you know, essentially refuel, you know, put gas back into the tank and then we'll push on from there. And really within coaching, there's a time to push your clients and there's a time to pull back. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm glad that you touched on the psychological aspect of um, the whole maintenance break. So yeah. And, and I'm not a macros coach, so I'm not giving my clients macros and say, Hey, have fun on a maintenance break. Like you're going to have a plan. Like if you're eating Jasmine rice, like stick to that carb, like your body is already digesting it and knows it like it's used to it. So listen, you're at 125 grams. Maybe we bump it up to 200 or 175, whatever it is, like stick with the same food. So I'm glad you touched on those two points for anybody that's hearing this and like wants to try going into a maintenance break, stick with the food you're doing, just eat a little bit more mm -hmm. of it, right? Like that it's the simplest way to, to, to go about it. Um, Dr. Aaron, do you have any uh, questions for him before? Cause I keep going no, off. I just, him. I thought it was interesting. Cause when you talked about refeeds, it's, it seemed like a, like from the research out there, it seemed like a very temporary um, thing, right? Like our body readjusts very quickly to, um, you know, what it's, what it's accustomed to, especially if you're dieting down. You know, what's interesting about that is a lot of people look at that as a negative. So what Aaron is alluding to is the fact that we see transient increases in leptin, in thyroid hormone production, all these different metabolic markers that are downregulated during a diet, during a refeed due to increases in calories and increases in carbohydrate availability. However, that works on the same end of the spectrum for metabolic adaptation. Metabolic adaptation is a transient and a temporary state. And I really want people to understand, I'll say it again, it's a transient and temporary state. Once you get out of an active weight loss phase where you are out of an energy deficit, you're no longer actively losing weight, you get back to maintenance calories or above or beyond, you're going to reverse those metabolic adaptations. So the same thing happens in the opposite side, as Aaron is, is speaking about, where you go from being in an energy deficit, then you're out of a deficit back to maintenance, and then you go right back into a deficit. You're going to incur those metabolic adaptations once again. Mm -hmm. So for every gimme, there's a gotcha, but you have to realize within that, that phase, if that was what was going to help a client stay adherent to the program, it was going to help them get through not only that week, but the rest of that phase. That is, um, we have to look at the cost to benefit ratio, and that is really skewed in the way of benefits over costs. However, when it comes down to actual metabolic adaptation, this is essentially a temporary state for it. So for instance, one of the best you know research that we have on this, there's a research group um, from Katia Mortens. And so she looks at, you know, she does meta-analysis on these topics. She does a, an immense amount of um, research on the topic of metabolic adaptation. And really what there's a huge debate in the literature right now, or there was the last few years until her research group really 
really honed in on this. And it was, is metabolic adaptation a permanent thing? Is it something that stays and exists past the active weight loss phase itself? And so this is where there's many, you know, and we can get into this, like some of these myths, like starvation mode or metabolic damage and things of that sort. But really what she and her research found was that, you know, there's a prevalence in our space where people think that metabolic adaptation not only exists past the weight loss phase itself, but also that it, you know, could per, uh, persist in a fact that it makes you gain weight over time. And so this is not something we see in actual, like our, our randomized control study. So for instance, her research group did one where they investigated the relationship between metabolic adaptation and subsequent weight regain. Because a lot of people will say, listen, if I incurred a deep degree, a large degree of metabolic adaptation during a diet, does that predispose me to gaining more weight after? Because now my, my metabolism is suppressed. And what they did was in 2020, they did a research study where they looked at the degree of metabolic adaptation during a diet and the weight regain in over 170 women who had dieted and lost around 16% of their body weight, which is a significant degree of weight loss. And at the end of the active dieting phase, they measured these participants' metabolic rate. And they did see that there was metabolic adaptation. They were just having you know, actively lost weight. And so they had a little over a 50 calorie reduction in their resting metabolic rate due to metabolic adaptation. They then followed them up and remeasured the resting metabolic rate at four weeks post-diet, at one year post-diet, and also at two years of post, you know, essentially weight loss maintenance. And when they reanalyzed their, their metabolic rate after they were in a state of energy balance for four weeks, so they were just eating, you know, back at maintenance calories for four weeks, they did not measure any degree of substantial or significant metabolic adaptation. And they also found no association between the degree of metabolic adaptation the women had experienced during the diet and their chance of weight regain within not only those four weeks, not only that one year, but two years of finishing that weight loss phase. So we have to realize if this really is a temporary state, this is something, and that's oftentimes people will ask me, well, how do we avoid it? You know, I, I don't want to incur this. And they're kind of scared of dieting because of this. And it's like, listen, you really should get in. If you have a goal and fat loss is your goal, let's get in. Let's make an effective deficit that's not too aggressive. High protein, make sure we're prioritizing resistant training. You're using whole foods to be able to uh, feel satiated and be able to manage hunger and appetite and things of that sort. But let's get in get fat loss off. And then instead of being this chronic dieter where you're going in a deficit and out of a deficit, all these things, let's make sure that we get in, we get the goal accomplished and we get out and back to maintenance or beyond. And we really look at a longer period of being at maintenance than we are in a, in an actual diet, because what the average person does is they diet for a few weeks and then they're either overeating or, you know, I, I call this the weekday dieter Monday through Friday. They're on point. They're under fueling themselves and, you know, they're eating in a deficit. And then during the weekends, they go out, they have some drinks, they have some meals and, and they go into a massive surplus and they're already metabolically adapted from being in a deficit throughout the week. The so now days, their fat storage yeah. enzymes are, are increased. Now their metabolic rate is decreased. Their total daily energy ex expenditures decreased. So they're more likely to store fat because they have a lower total daily energy expenditure and they're more insulin sensitive because they've lost fat out of fat cells and fat cells do have the ability to become more insulin sensitive from caloric deficit. So now they're storing more fat on weekends. They're not losing as much fat during the week. They're underfueling themselves, incurring metabolic adaptations. And they're on this like perpetual dieting circle. It's like this wild ride where they're on the diet, off the diet, on the diet, off the diet, never getting any results and never looking better. They're becoming a smaller, um, essentially less muscular version of themselves. And they're never getting to where they want to be. They lose a little bit of weight. They regain that weight and even then some, and then they always have to restart a diet just to make up for what they've done in the past. Whereas if you were just to be intentional, and this is always what I talk to my clients about, we're going to intentionally 
approach this goal. This is no, you know, we're not dipping our toes into a fat loss phase. It's if you want to go into fat loss phase, we're going to periodize. We're going to plan this. It's going to be phasic. We're going to make sure that you have more than enough time to reach a goal. We're going to have phasic periods of pushing, meaning that we're going to be in an energy deficit. There's going to be times that I refeed you if necessary. Yeah. Or you're, you're, yeah, put you on a diet break. And once you're done, we're getting right back to maintenance and really working at first going through a maintenance phase, whether that be, a, you know, we can term this whatever you want. Some people in the industry don't want to call it a reverse diet. We can call it a reverse diet, a recovery, recovery diet, diet, a maintenance phase, yeah. whatever you want to say. And we're going to get a, a, a portion after your weight loss phase where we have an exit strategy. So you can maintain the fat that you lost, but also upregulate the rest of the systems that were downregulated due to metabolic adaptation during a diet. And then from there, we're going to work on another goal, such as increasing your lean body mass so that your next time dieting, you're in a better, you're in a better point in terms of not only the way your body looks from a body composition perspective, but your total daily energy expenditure. If you increase muscle mass, you're going to be able to burn more calories. And essentially, if you increase, a, or if you add a significant amount of muscle mass, you'll be able to diet more on more calories over over time doesn't happen in one phase but over the life course whereas most people if you really look at it from like a statistical perspective most people are losing more muscle over time because they aggressively diet they lose lean body mass during the diet they suffer from what's called body fat overshooting effect which is essentially induced by hyperphagia which is excessive hunger or persistent hunger from the loss of lean body mass so they become not only fatter but less muscular over time and now they're dieting on less and less calories because their metabolic rate is lower due to that loss of lean body mass not due to metabolic adaptation yeah I have just have a quick question, like, um, you know, looking at this like big, big view, right? You're talking about, I know, I know we're talking about metabolic adaptation and, and like small changes and how to manipulate that. But in general, um, what's your opinion on, you know, do you think BMR is kind of a static number or do you feel like most people's BMRs kind of have a range? And so there's some percentage that you can actually manipulate, but um, in general, they kind of have a range of a, of a of their BMR. And that's why we're able to kind of, you know, metabolically manipulate, if you will, um, their BMR. I think we have to separate. If you actually look in the literature on BMR, we don't see a massive, not only a massive discrepancy between individuals, but we also don't see that BMR specifically changes significantly unless someone has added a significant amount of muscle mass. So for instance, for every, it's like for every pound of muscle that you gain, it's about six calories. And so you're you're really not gaining all that much. Or actually, yeah, it's it's about six calories, I believe. Four to four to six calories per pound gain. So you would have to gain a substantial amount of tissue to be able to actually increase your BMR, just your basal metabolic rate. However, I think we can increase your total daily energy expenditure. And the reason for that is because BMR is essentially the least modifiable component of our total daily energy expenditure, both on the way down and the way up. So for instance, when we look at actual research and a lot of people are concerned about down regulations in BMR during a fat loss phase, a lot of people think that's like the largest component, but if we actually look at, there's research from Michael Rosenbaum's lab um, and they specifically looked at, at different aspects of total daily energy expenditure that have reduced during a diet. And they found even with significant weight loss. So these were participants that lost 10% of their body weight, their RMR or the resting metabolic rate only decreased by hundred calories. And we have many other studies. So for instance, I just spoke about the Martin study. They only decreased, they lost 16% of their body weight and only decreased by 50 calories. So just like it only decreases a, a small bit, we're not going to see massive upregulations in BMR. The biggest that I've ever seen was an overfeeding study where they saw a 10 to 15% increase in baseline BMR. And that was massive overfeeding. It was a thousand calories per day uh, sustained for eight plus weeks. And so I don't think it's BMR, but I do think your total daily energy expenditure can significantly 
increase. So that bandwidth that you're speaking about, that range, that maintenance range, but it's going to be from other components. So for instance, let's say that we look at all the other components of someone's total daily energy expenditure. So first we look at NEAT. NEAT in a study by Black et al., they looked at the differences between two people of the same body composition and saw that NEAT can vary up to 2,000 calories despite two people having the same anthropometric data, meaning that same level of body fat, the same body mass, all these things, just based on their occupational activities and their, their daily activities or their activities of daily living. So that's a 2,000 calorie discrepancy right there. So that could be, you know, Vinny at 2,000 calorie Vinny or Vinny at, you know, 4,000 calorie Vinny, it, it, a, a massive range. The other thing is, uh, we can have an increase in thermic effective feeding. So we take someone from a very low protein, low fiber diet, and we put them on a higher, uh, higher uh, protein, a higher carb, because carbs do have a higher thermic effective feeding than do fats, a, a moderate fat diet, and also a high fiber diet, we're going to increase their thermic effective feeding. Also, there's other components of, you know, things that can increase total daily energy expenditure, such as meal timing. So if you have consistent meal timing, we actually see a higher thermic effective feeding from that, just from the circadian rhythm aspect of, you know, chrononutrition, essentially. Then the last part, eat. If you gain more muscle and you're utilizing that muscle during a workout, you're going to increase energy expenditure. So all these things work in tangent, but I don't think we could isolate one component and say, this is what's going to be a large range because BMR just doesn't change that significantly unless you're, you're looking at someone from the beginning of their training career until the end. So for instance, I've had many clients that I've taken and they were newbies essentially. And over the course of four or five years, they're now 30 or 40 pounds larger with, you know, predominance. And these are, are new trainees. So most males can gain from the beginning of their training career to the end or within like, say the first four to five years of training, you know, anywhere between 25 to 40 pounds. We even see like in the baseline literature or even in like um, some of the best like evidence-based practitioners, Alan Aragon's a good friend of mine. He will say that the average male can gain between 12 to 24 pounds of lean body mass within their first year of training. That is like and statistically it, what they say. It kind of it evens out. It starts, yeah, yeah. So what we we actually see is uh, it's almost like an asymptote. So it goes up yeah. and it keeps going up, but it's it's going down it's slower. So essentially, yeah. So it's like it's like twelve to twenty four pounds your first week, the uh, first year of training, hard training, like significant, like progressive resistance training. Next year, cut yeah. that in half. Next year, cut that in half. You get four or five years in if you've been nailing everything. And this is the thing. I don't want people to catastrophize this that you don't gain muscle past four or five years. Most of you aren't nailing it, so it's going to take you ten years to get to that point. <laughs> However, uh, yes, it does slow down significantly. And we see the same thing. There's an asymptote in all these things. If you look in the literature on protein intake, there's a meta-analysis by Morton and colleagues, which is, it's interesting because everyone cites that. It's a 2018 meta-analysis. And I know you guys have heard it. It's 1.6 and 2.2 grams per kilogram of, of protein um, is the maximize, maximize uh, muscle hypertrophy. However, you actually look at the most recent meta-analysis on protein intake. It's by Tagawa. It's 2020 meta-analysis. And they actually saw that there was an increase, a linear increase from 1.5 grams of protein per kilogram up to 3.5 grams of protein per kilogram, but it's so asymptotic, meaning it's it goes up substantially at 1.5. You see it rise really uh, heavily, and then the line is like this, and it almost looks like it's not increasing, but you do get a couple more kilograms of fat-free mass for you know increasing that protein intake. So these are small. These are where the one percents we're talking about, which really do add up over a training career or when we're working with people. I work with a lot of intermediate or advanced trainees, and that's where integrating some of these more nuanced perspectives, really dialing in different aspects of their their training, their nutrition, their lifestyle, their sleep, their stress management. There's so many other things. So for instance, we can see, uh, you know, massive decreases in your lean body mass from uh, uh, discrepancies in sleep. So poor sleep quality. There's a study by uh, Nettle Cheva from 2010, where they looked at 5.5 hours versus 8.5 hours. And they had these two individuals, they, or two groups, they cross over the study and both individuals went through both um, conditions of sleep. And during the, and this was without resistance training. So we have to keep that as a caveat, but during the, the good sleep portion, when they had 8.5 hours of sleep, they lost about 80% of body weight from 
fat mass and 20, it was about 18 to 20% from lean body mass. However, when they switched them and they went to the 5.5 hour um, percentage, they actually saw the exact opposite. It, it flipped. And so they lost 80% of the same amount of weight that they had lost in the previous two weeks from lean body mass and only about 20% from fat mass. So these are little things that can really make, and these are things people don't think about. Like you talk to clients right. about sleep quality, you're about stress management, <laughs> all these different components. And it's so multifactorial, which is why coaching can never just come down to macros. It can't just come down to calorie adjustments yeah. or utilizing a calorie calculator. This is about really getting to know people, really explaining things to them, and then going over all these fine tooth details. Like, listen, the first thing I do with all my clients, especially people with long dieting histories, I look for their bottlenecks. What has plagued them? previously from being able to diet effectively and efficiently and not only losing fat but being able to keep it off and most of it is that they're so extreme i get a lot of type a personalities i i i seem to attract them i'm very much the same way and so they're so extreme in their approach they want to go all in on the deficit and what ends up happening is they not only severely restrict themselves they overdo things in terms of the actual deficit that they create but they also it's so unsustainable that oftentimes they they slip up and they you know they have this all or nothing mentality or this black and white thinking where it's dichotomous and so then you know because they slipped up they just go off the haywire or you know they essentially eat everything in sight and then they regain a bunch of weight they go back to you know excessive restriction so it's like this yo-yo dieting type of a uh, phenomenon where they're not getting the body composition results they want nor do they have a good relationship with food as a result and so right. these are the bottlenecks we have to look for. Yes, there's many aspects of metabolic adaptation that we can mitigate through different you know, strategies and stuff. But we also have to look at what has what causes a client to incur these metabolic adaptations. Is it because they were too severe in the deficit that they utilized? Is it because they didn't prioritize resistance training? They just did excessive cardio as their main modality of burning calories rather than preserving lean body mass? Is it because they didn't utilize a high protein diet? Is it because they didn't track their steps and they became very sedentary and not even realized it? And essentially they had to continue eating less and less and less until it was unsustainable and they could no longer lose any more fat? Or was it that they weren't aware of metabolic adaptation, had never heard of it, weren't aware of it, and so they didn't have a post-diet strategy? So they went from eating a very restrictive diet, being in an energy deficit, and then all bets were off once that diet phase ended. Once they got to the vacation, once they went to the cruise, once they, you know, went after, you know, got, you know, to their wedding and they hit their goal, it was like they had no exit strategy in place, no plan of action. They had no thought of the future. And that's why they went through these subsequent cycles of losing weight and regaining it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I think that's, um, I think it's really important, um, especially with like the exit strategy, because um, they, they want the goal, but then it's like, when you get to the goal, what's next, right? Like, mm -hmm. do you have a plan for after that? Like we asked for a, a minimum of six months to work with us. Absolutely. That's a minimum. That's, that's the least amount of time I want with you. But sometimes when that time comes up, it's like, all right, my six months is up and I've got the results I need. I'm like, all right, so you're going to stay with us so we could go into this exit strategy. Well, what do you mean? Oh, and then it's like, wait a minute, you, we talked about this, I guess you weren't listening, but here, this is what we need to do uh, for, for your exit strategy. And we try to teach them on the exit strategy to be able to do it by themselves. Cause honestly, like, I know it's not business savvy, but we're here to empower people, right? We're here to teach them the right way. And then they could maybe pass it on. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's very important to, to have that exit strategy going in. Um, Brandon, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, man. You gave us a lot of, a ton of information. Um, but just to end this, um, is there, can you just like sum up, like if you were to just say, Hey, this is the most important advice I will give to anybody that's going into a dieting phase about metabolic adaptation. What would that advice be? All right. So my overarching advice, and, and I'm going to try to be as uh, concise as possible, but you guys both know I'm not concise. So we'll see how this goes. Um, my overarching advice here. would be to be aware of metabolic adaptation. Do not fear it. Do not try to avoid it. Um, 
essentially, when we actually look into the research literature on metabolic adaptation, it is not a predictor of weight regain. It is not something that's going to completely limit your ability to lose body fat. It does not halt fat loss. It makes the process more challenging and more difficult. However, it is actually a sign and an indication of successful fat loss. So we actually see in research studies looking at the magnitude or the degree of metabolic adaptation one sustains. It's generally based on three components. It's the magnitude of weight loss, it's the length of the diet, and it's how long that person was able to keep up or how low in body fat that person was able to get and sustain that body fat level. So it's actually, when you actually incur a deep degree of metabolic adaptation, like, so all three of us have incurred tremendous amounts of metabolic adaptation getting into stage shape. It's actually an indication of success. So think about it almost like you would hunger. A lot of people shy away from hunger and say, so look at hunger as this negative thing. However, if you weren't hungry during a diet, I can almost guarantee you, you're not in an energy deficit or you're on your way to being back to maintenance. And so really these are indications we have to embrace. These are obstacles. And as with anything in life, nothing worth having is worth having, you know, if it's just easy, come easy, go. Because things that we're able to get in an instance are generally things we lose very, very quickly. So if you're able to take an approach where it's more intelligent, it's more strategic, you're able to mitigate some of these effects, utilize a high protein diet, have better food choices, utilize better food quality to ensure that you're satiated, uh, utilize an effective deficit, but make sure that you're in a calorie deficit, not a nutrient deficit. So mind your micros, make sure that you're looking at your micronutrient intake. Um, you're really dialing in, whether it be your food choice selection, you're looking on chronometer, you're, you're balancing everything out, you're tracking things accurately because that's a big thing that a lot of people think that they're metabolically adapted and they're in a plateau, but actually it's a lack or is there essentially um, underestimating their actually calorie intake. So we actually, there's research studies looking head to head at whether it's metabolic adaptation to blame for plateaus or it's actually adherence. And what they mean by adherence is actually sticking to the plan. And Kevin Hall has a great study on this. And so, um, you know, that's another component, but really an overarching thing is do not fear this, realize that it's a part of the process. And this is something that every single one of us will incur. However, you can get around it by having a great mindset, realizing that it's a part of the process and really being mindful of the things within your control. So for instance, there are going to be things in every aspect of our life that are within our control and outside of our control. So I'll go through a little list of things. You can now control your total BMR. That is something that is, is based on your body composition where you're starting all these things. However, you can prioritize resistant training, making sure that you're having a progressive training stimulus to maintain as much muscle as possible because we don't want to look for weight loss. We want actual fat loss. We want as much fat loss come, or fat mass coming off and as little lean body mass coming off. And, and opt, you know, you know, ideally we would lose entirely fat mass and no lean body mass. And you'd actually recomp throughout this process. And so we want to prioritize resistance training as our main, that is our main stimulus for maintaining muscle tissue, which will maintain your metabolic rate. Then from a neat component, make sure to mind your steps, track your steps, titrate them up over time, really be uh, cognizant of your activity levels and realize that is a huge vector for burning calories in a low um, a low intensity way that is a low barrier of entry. Anyone can put on shoes and go outside or, or go on a treadmill, whatever it may be, also has a very low recovery and fatigue cost as compared to high intensity interval training or you know doing you know a step mill for hours at a time, things of that sort. Then from a thermic effect of food perspective, I would say really be um, proactive in utilizing a high protein diet, not only for the fact that it has a higher level of diet induced thermogenesis, but also for its muscle retention benefits, its satiety benefits, there's so many downstream benefits of utilizing a high protein diet. And then from an exercise activity thermogenesis, try to maintain, and this is really a mindset thing more than a, a physical thing. We actually look at meta-analysis on um, training in an energy deficit. We do not see in most of the meta-analytic data until you get into contest shape, you're not losing strength during an energy deficit. However, in people's mind, the, the first week <laughs> they're in an energy deficit, they're like, dude, I'm taxing the gym. 
it's a mindset thing. I've died more times than anyone wants to know. And I'll tell you, as long as I go into the gym with a progressive mindset, utilize a little caffeine to uh, decrease my perceived exertion, things of that sort. But uh, if I'm able to get into a mindset that I'm training, you're not training for fat loss, you're training for muscle growth. So the same type of training program, if it's successful during a building phase in allowing you to accrue muscle tissue, utilize that during the fat loss phase, because what built your muscle will maintain your muscle. So it's not about going from utilizing heavy progressive resistance training, where you're trying to utilize, say, a double progression, increasing both reps and load over time in, you know, stable exercises that you are neurologically efficient in. It's not about going from that to going to circuit training or to doing high reps because you're going to burn in the cuts. These are things that they make no sense. And a lot of, there's a lot of claims around them, but you have to check off each box of that. So look at every component of your total daily energy expenditure and see what areas you can dial in most in your life. And then also be objective with yourself. And sometimes that takes going to a coach. So like I spoke about my own process, I look for the bottlenecks in someone's uh, lifestyle, in, in someone's previous approach and why they held themselves back. And sometimes it is one of those components of their total daily energy expenditure. Sometimes it's their mindset. Sometimes they have a fragility narrative that they've saw on social media. They think that they're metabolically resistant or they've heard all these functional medicine, you know, terms and things. Don't and they think started. That's it becomes us. We got to do another <laughs> well, podcast. That, that, Aaron, I, would love to, I would love to, I would love to get your opinion on this because I will tell you, I've worked with over a thousand individuals and there are very few people that I will say that they are fat loss resistant. And, 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 there's zero people that I will say are physiologically fat loss resistant, psychologically a different thing. However, remember that you need to take and, and stop telling yourself this narrative that you can't do something just because you have had previous failures. That's a, a big thing within the dieting culture and, and dieting you know, community as a whole. People have previously bad experiences. You need to start on a fresh lead. Learn from your mistakes of the past, but don't let them hold you back from really being the best version of yourself. And don't allow self-limiting beliefs of what have happened in the past to prevent you from giving your best in effort in the present moment and in this present fat loss phase. Yeah, that's that's mainly touching on their identity and what they identify with, which was unsuccessful weight loss. And they think they're, they're stuck to that, but it was just the wrong game plan. That's all it was. Like you could lose weight, diets work, plain and simple, but you need the right game plan. Um, Dr. Aaron, do you have any last questions for Brandon? I have just a philosophical question for you. Absolutely. One, we really appreciate your time and oh, yeah. thank you for going through all the data. I, I appreciate it. Um, I'm just wondering how you achieve balance between, you know, dieting phases and, you know, you always look great in your pictures. So I'm just wondering, you know, for our clients too, like how, how does someone like you achieve that kind of balance? I think the number one thing I can say to that, to answer that is we define our own balance. So for instance, I, I spoke to you guys about my morning routine. I get up earlier than 3 a.m., but that is also because I have clients all around the world. And so my priority is my business, is my clients. I love communicating. This morning, I was on a, a consultation call on Zoom at 3.30 a.m., and it's 4.30 p.m. at this point. And yeah. so this is 13 hours of Zoom consultations. Realize that what people in the general public, whether it be uh, you see on social media or your peers, what they define as balance doesn't have to be your balance. So balance for me is living the best version of myself, is working towards being 1% better at some aspects. So that could be physically, whether it be in the gym, that could be intellectually, learning something new, that could be emotionally, that could be spiritually, my connection with God, you know, my connection with my family. I'm trying to get 1% better in one aspect of my life each and every day. And the reason I kind of spread that out through multiple components is we're not always, no journey in life is linear, meaning we're not going to get better physically every single day. We're not going to get better. We're not going to get smarter every single day. Uh, we're not going to get 
better emotional intelligence every single day, but we can work towards one of those aspects and really dial it in, even if it's just as, as simple as connecting with a friend and really reinforcing, saying something good about them or giving them a compliment, making them feel good. And really my driving force in life, and this is what balances to me is living, you know, my life's passion is giving back to others, is working with people, really helping them. And then also balancing that out with trying to not only give of myself, but also pour into my own cup. So do things that I really enjoy, I really like. So for instance, the gym is, I, I won't, it used to be an outlet, like a stress outlet for me, but now it's like a safe haven for me. It is the one time in my day where I turn off my phone. I, I carry two phones around me at all times. Because one day I, I turn off my phones. I don't answer any emails. I really, this is a connection. This is a spiritual thing for me, essentially. And so balance to me is essentially being able to have a life where I'm feeling fulfilled. I'm working towards goals. I'm making progress in multiple areas. You know, and I kind of consider it this for, you know, I have three F's and I always try to get two out of three F's. So the F's for me, my three F's are, you know, fitness, there's family and faith. So my relationships with my family members, my friends and God, and then finances. So that's also business. And I always try to get two out of three. Cause if you think about it, like just statistically, uh, if you're a baseball player and you hit two out of three, you're a hall of famer. Hall of famer. So I, I won't say that balance. Cause a lot of people will tell you, you got to do it all. One, one, out all three. Three one out of three, you'd be a hall of famer of baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I'm, I'm trying to, you know, really cement my, my way in there. I'm trying to be like Sammy Sosa out here, yeah. but um, you know, really when it comes down to it, I'm trying to live in alignment with my vision, uh, with the mission that I have for myself. And, and that allows me to have balance. Although I will tell you that many people that know me from the outside they only see me on social media they don't know me personally they think i'm unbalanced and that's fine we have to be accepted about that and i always tell clients i'm like listen you know it's the same concept i, I know you guys probably have this conversation all the time where you have a client that has stopped drinking or they're dieting for something and it's like they have other people criticizing what they're doing and i always tell my clients listen that is a reflection of them more it is than it is on you they're they're really you know casting their their um, you know, frustrations about their inability to do something on you rather than them actually being frustrated with you. So don't worry personally, realize that they have some inner work that they need to do. Maybe they can't, you know, achieve the physique goals that they want, or they can't improve their health or every time they do, they slip up and they feel frustrated that they see someone that is in, you know, right in front of them, that's in their life, that's doing it and nailing it. And they feel like they're a failure as a result. And so the same thing is said about me. I don't care about any other people's definition of balance or their judgment of my level of balance of my very early mornings, my late nights and things like that I'm, I'm fulfilled. And I'm doing something that I'm very blessed to be in the position I am um, in terms of being able to create a career out of this. Uh, you know, I worked a long career in a, co a corporate industry, which I love, don't get me wrong, but uh, um, this is something that I really am in alignment with. And uh, that's my balance. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Thank yeah. you. That's awesome. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so Brendan, why don't you tell our fellows where they could, uh, where they could find you? Yeah, absolutely, guys. So you guys can follow, you know, follow me at Brandon DeCruz underscore, which is on Instagram. You guys will see daily content. Probably the best thing to do is uh, if you guys are interested in podcasts like this, uh, look up the Chasing Clarity Health and Fitness podcast. That's myself and Jeff Black, or you can even look up my name in Spotify. You'll find like 200 plus podcasts over the years. And then also, if you guys have any questions, inquiries, things of that sort, I'm always more... Um, you know, engaging in email because I kind of live on my email. So feel free to reach out to me. My email address is btacruzfitness at gmail.com. And to both of you guys, it was an absolute pleasure being with you guys, spending my Friday evening with you too. And uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on, especially as your first guest. So yeah, thank no, you. man, we, we were blessed, man. And and we're committed to, to bringing value, um, especially in the form of content. Um, so to all of you out there um, to show Brandon your appreciation, go give him a follow, share this episode with whoever you want, share it on your social media platforms, get this, get his knowledge out there, get our knowledge out there um, and try to positively impact um, other people. Brandon, thank you so much for our time, for, for your time and, and all of that information. And it was absolutely awesome. I'm going to put all your information in the show notes so people could go just click on it and follow you and uh, maybe even email you. So as you navigate your own path towards better health, just remember that balanced bodies is forever in your corner and we will see you all next week. Brandon, thanks again. 
podcast content may include discussions of medical topics and health-related information. However, the information provided should not be considered exhaustive or complete, and it should not be relied upon as a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare providers with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment.